Hey y'all, hey, Soil Cousins, I need to have a word with you. This is a public service announcement about voting because we all need to do it, all right? So we know this is a, a election year, all right? There's a It's a presidential election, but we need to be mindful of a couple specific things. There are many more candidates on the ballot besides the president, all right? So what you need to do is go to Ballot Ready, that's B-A-L-L-O-T, R-E-A-D-Y dot org for a nonpartisan guide to your entire ballot. You can see the whole thing. You need to know what's on there so you don't get in the booth looking cray or just being completely uninformed and leaving some parts blank. Leaving it blank, yo, that's just an opportunity for evil to prevail. And the last thing we need is for evil doing that. So from there on the ballot ready site, you can compare your candidates based on their stances on issues, biography or endorsements, and then you can save your choices to use when you vote by mail or in the voting booth. We have options. You can even request your absentee ballot or make a plan to vote because we need a plan early on or on election day. This election matters. So make sure that you have a plan to vote so that you can vote informed, y'all. And I want to make sure that you understand that it is, you might be unfamiliar with some of the more local positions. That's really what I'm talking to you about. Like, I, I want you to consider that. We know you probably have already kind of made up your mind about who you want to vote for for president. That's your business. But if you are unfamiliar with some of the more local positions, positions, we recommend hosting a ballot party. All right. We can, we can. You know, make it a little bit fun. Get together with your friends over Zoom. Split up the research. You guys, you know, go through your ballots together so that we can be informed about these local positions that matter so much. They control things like who to prosecute and they're monitoring the quality of our drinking water and even the access to some of the spaces that we want to use for community gardening. You know, there's so many things and changes that have happened with polling places and such as a result of COVID. So we just want to make sure, well, I just want to make sure with this public service announcement that my soil cousins are prepared. Go to BallotReady.org and enter your address to make a plan to vote and vote informed. What's up, y'all? We black in the garden. Hey, guess what? We black in the garden. Guess what, y'all? I say we black in the garden. <laughs> and this your girl, Cola B, talking. I was just trying to save that intro. I mean, but you know who I am. I said it. Cola B, talking. You know what this is. It's a podcast, Black in the Garden. And I am very happy that you have joined me. Once again, another beautiful week in February 2020, okay, aka Black History Month, still going strong. Very excited to bring to you this special interview with Samantha Fox of Mother's Finest Urban Farms. That's right, because it's fancy, y'all. It is definitely fancy. And part of what we're doing today as a part of our Black History Month celebration is we are paying homage to Fannie Lou Hamer. Now, last week, what we did was we paid homage to the botanical goat, George Washington Carver, and we spoke with a modern day 
botanist, Derek Haynes. And that was a wonderful conversation. I hope that you are caught up. I hope that you enjoyed that two-part conversation. Once again, we're going to do another two-parter. We're just, I want to like spread the love. You know what I'm saying? I want to get into Fannie Lou Hamer's legacy a bit before I get into this interview. So I hope that y'all are ready. I hope that you know who she is. If you don't know who Fannie Lou Hamer is, guess what? About to tell you. I hope that y'all did not think that I forgot our Kwanzaa principle of the week. Okay. I hope you didn't forget. I didn't forget because it's Umoja. All right. And that means unity. And that is something that, well, you know, in all honesty, when I was considering what the Kwanzaa principle for the week would be, and I'm looking at the principles, you know, there's seven of them. And I'm like, yo, which one? Which one though? Because she was really out here bodying all of them. I said bodying. <laughs> I meant bodying, not embodying. She did that too. But she was really out here making a lot of sacrifices for the cause. She was out here helping to organize the Freedom Summer in 1964, which is, which was, my bad, which was a voting rights movement. It was a, a very specific movement that was going on in the South that was organized in order to make sure that Black voters were getting representation, that Black voters were getting to the polls and things of that nature. Now, it's very important that we do our own research. And speaking of research, I want to shout out Chana Kai Lee, who is the author of For Freedom's Sake, The Life of Fannie Lou Hamer, which is the text that I will be referring to specifically and exclusively when it comes to the information that I'm going to share with you about Fannie Lou Hamer. Now, this is a Black author and a professor at the University of Georgia, go UGA-A-A. <laughs> And I was just so thrilled to get my hands on this book. And, you know, because it's 2020, we in the technology age, it would have been so easy to just go off of a website. And I definitely did my Googles. You know, I'd be asking Auntie Google about stuff. But I said, you know what? This book, I went to the library. Why are we going to the library if we're not getting books? All right. We could Google anywhere. All right. So let's get into it. Our ancestor, Fannie Lou Hamer, freedom fighter, freedom farmer, organizer, ancestor, and beloved soil sister. She, as I mentioned, sacrificed a lot. She dealt with personal loss, including the loss of a child. She dealt with, oh my God, beef from the NAACP, y'all. There was the SNCC. She had a situation with the Supreme Court that went well in her favor. The MFDP, the SCPI, the CBGM. It was a lot of letters. <laughs> there was a lot of letters. And once you dig deeper into her life and all of the ways that Fannie Lou Hamer 
was making a difference in the world. She just wanted to make a difference in her hometown of Sunflower County in Mississippi. She just wanted to fight against poverty. She wanted to abolish poverty, similar to many civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King. All right. And so specifically as it relates to Black in the Garden, the Freedom Farm, she acquired about 2,000 acres and was able to make it so that the this land was owned by Black people. And this was all in Sunflower County, Mississippi, around 1971, between 1969 and 1971. It started, she just had this vision. She had this idea. And, and I want y'all to pay attention, especially those of us who have a lot of visions and have a lot of ideas. I'm raising my hand right now because that's me AF. All right. She just had an idea to start a pig bank. Yes, we talk about the pork. Don't get all up in arms about somebody eating pigs. Listen, they had to do what they had to do. All right. And so it started with 50 pigs that were donated by the NCNW. Let me make sure I got that right. The National Council of Negro Women donated 50 pigs to the Freedom Farm. That was pretty much how it got popping. Any family that had the appropriate facilities could receive from the bank a female pig, a pregnant female pig, who eventually would have anywhere from nine to 20 baby pigs. And I'm just reading this from For Freedom's Sake by author Chana Kylie, as I mentioned, going into this factual reference here. So a family would have a pregnant pig who could have anywhere from nine to 20 baby pigs. And the mother pig, which is called the principal, was then returned to the general bank so that it could be donated to the next needy family. And I remember when I first learned about this, when I first started getting into Fannie Lou Hamer last year, as I was just looking for food activists, for for freedom, for people who were basically gardening, growing food in a way that was determined to help people because that is a very significant and specific way that we can help people. I know we're talking about the pig farm right now, but we're getting into the freedom farm because the pig farm was part of that. It wasn't just vegetables. It was also, you were, were providing a whole meal by creating this system. Isn't that a dope system? You get a pregnant pig who gives birth to, to these babies and then you get, you know, you get your meat. We're talking about poor families, y'all. We're not talking about living in the way that many of us are living with the first world problems that we have. We're talking about poor poverty, need these pigs, need these crops, all right? So the whole goal was to breed as many pigs as possible before the slaughter, you know, because of course we can't just have this one pig that lives forever and ever, you know, circle of life. So in the first year and a half of the pig banks, approximately 135 families received pigs. That's impact. That is definitely impact. You cannot deny that. And by about the third year in 1973, close to 900 families had participated in the pig bank, in this program, 
receiving pigs, breeding pigs, essentially, so that everybody could eat. Everybody could have some bacon. There was between 2,000 and 3,000 pigs altogether is the estimate for how many pigs were bred just off of the, the pig bank. So shout out to that. Shout out to the pig bank in relation to the Freedom Farm because it was like it was a two part system. Right. So the second component of the Freedom Farm was the acquisition of land for raising vegetables. All right. Shout out to the vegans out there. I know y'all been waiting for the vegetable part to come in. In 1969, Fannie Lou Hamer purchased a 40 acre plot of land. Let's just think about, let's just pause on the symbolism of it all. A 40 acre plot of land. And that was um, just Northwest of Drew, Mississippi, Sunflower County for $20,000. All right. Had to put a down payment, $8,000, you know, had to do what she had to do, but she was a fundraiser. She was able to get it done in the way that it needs to get done to make sure that the people got what the people needed. And by 1971, there was about 1,940 acres, almost 2,000 acres and 33 plots of land. And that was altogether in North Sunflower County it made up about 33% of the land that was owned by Blacks. 33% of the land in Sunflower County at that time under Black ownership and being cultivated and being used to grow vegetables and also host the pig bank. So that was a pretty big deal to be able to have land because of course we gotta have land if we're farming. If we are to feed a, a large amount of people, we need a large amount of space so that we can make that happen. Now we're talking about a pretty decent scale operation. So in order to acquire land and of course to acquire the appropriate equipment to work the land, then there was there was money that had to be acquired. And so at some point there were cotton crops that were generated on this land and the Profits from the cotton crops was able to be used to uh, pay off some of the debt, pay for, you know, the land, pay for cotton trailers, seeds, fertilizer, tools, letters, boxes, things of that nature. So let's keep in mind, you know, there's logistics involved. And on this land, they were raising things like corn. I was trying to say soybeans and corn at the same time. Can't do it. Can't do it. I know words. Soybeans, greens, corn, sweet potatoes, vegetables in general that were harvested and given to the needy families in Sunflower County. Uh, The produce that could not be used immediately was canned and preserved. And, you know, they were out here making sure that the people were eating. All right. And so there was an estimated 250 families that benefited from the first crop. And this was significant, and I'm reading from this book again, by Dr. Chana, Chana. In Sunflower County at the time, there was no food stamps available. Yo, had to grow it, had to grow it. If you was poor, you had to eat, you had to get it how you live, had to grow it. 
So this is just part one of this conversation. This is part one of sharing about Fannie Lou Hamer and her efforts to grow food in order to help with, help with, is that the right term? In order to make a a big impact on the poverty that she saw around her, the poverty that she experienced herself. She saw not only her neighbors dealing with malnourishment, but at the time when her daughter Dorothy died, she was malnourished. She had to be fed through a tube. She had to be fed glucose because she was malnourished. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And I'm going to be honest with you. My heart is heavy because Fannie Lou Hamer, she really, it wasn't just a sacrifice. It's not like people just be out here wanting to sacrifice. You know what I mean? She really struggled and she dealt with violence, not just in seeing it, but experienced it in physical violence against her own, you know, her own person. And Whew, it's a lot, but I'm going to save some for next week. We're going to get into a little bit more, but right now I want to get into this interview with, with Samantha Fox from Mother's Finest. Thank you so much for lending me your ears. I want to wish you a happy, happy, happy Black History Month, February 2020. And I hope that you enjoy part one of this interview with Samantha from Mother's Finest Urban Farms. So today on Black in the Garden, I am very excited to uh, bring to you the founder, Samantha Fox, founder, farm mother of Mother's Finest Urban Farm out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Samantha, welcome to Black in the Garden. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I certainly appreciate you reaching out to me and also just following my story and being involved with what's going on. I certainly look forward to um, growing this relationship, just like a plant, right? <laughs> just like a plant. Look at you. You jumping right in. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you taking the time because obviously you have to be pretty busy. Like you, you're running a farm. You got, is it two kids or three kids? Three. You got three kids. Uh, you got your husband. You a beekeeper. Uh, you you're making elderberry syrup for the children and and everybody who needs the the that healing. So I'm like, where to start? Oh my goodness. Um, how did you get started with farming? Like, what sparked your interest? So farming is something that's been in my life for quite a while. I do have family in the eastern part of North Carolina. Um, I did grow up in the eastern part of North Carolina through my teens. So it's very rich in agriculture in that area. Um, You see a lot of cotton fields, livestock, um, uh, cornfields. You're eating those type of things because it's something that's accessible to people in the community. I did grow up seeing community gardens. Um, I saw women in my family pioneering that type of thing. But then, you know, as an adult, you kind of drift away from those things and you kind of rekindle them at certain points in your life. And for my life, it was just at a point where it was just perfect timing in terms of where I was mentally and, and just in goal setting and what I wanted to do for not only myself, 
but for my family as well. So um, it was something that I was exposed to a lot early on. And I definitely appreciate being able to kind of come back to those type of things. And uh, actually, I went on further to get a variety of um, educational components and certifications and that type of thing. I've spent probably about two years just educating myself on bees. And um, I'm a master gardener. I wear several different hats. I volunteer in the community, at the markets, that type of thing. So I would say just initially it's already inside of me. <laughs> yeah. It, so so you grew up around farmers and community gardens. And so you, you saw it in action. And Exactly. You, yes, I did get a chance to see a lot of that in action. My grandmother's brother, he was a farmer. He did have quite a bit of land that he would work and we would go out at that time. They would pick tobacco. So they would go out and pick tobacco. And I would, you know, I was at that point, I was too young, you know, to really, I couldn't go out in the fields, but I did see the experience that they had with tobacco um, picking. And it was very hot. And sometimes I did see them, you know, seeming to work like for nothing because it's a lot of work, number two. And uh, mm-hmm. also, just like I said, the heat factor and working in long hours and kind of seeming like, wow, you know, they come back like my older cousins would come back and they would have like, you know, $10 or $20. And I'm like, wow, uh, I don't know if I want to do what they're doing. <laughs> but um, it was a good experience because you really learn to appreciate things on a different level and kind of gives you that humility that only lessons can give you, you know, even though you can read about it, talk about it, see other people going through it. But until you have some type of experience yourself, sometimes it's just not, you know, coming from a certain point of reality for you. So I definitely think it shapes me into being more of an aware person of, um, you know, what I'm doing and being intentional. Um, also just appreciating things um, at a different level. So yes, ma'am. So I understand that, you would see your, you said your, your cousins, your elders, they would come back in from all that work and they would only have like $10. <laughs> Sometimes it was, it was, it was definitely something that, you know, you would, you would think that they would have made more, you know, in a, in a day. And that's just not what it was. And that's just the re- reality of it. And that's how a lot of people in that area during that time that they still lived, you know, in terms of working out in the fields, it was still a lot of jobs that were, you know, farm labor and, and uh, working out in fields and, and you're not paid a lot, you know, and that's still true to this day. You know, you can go out in the farm and you're working there for six to eight hours. It's hard work. And it's definitely not something for everybody, you know, even getting paid minimum wage, um, in terms of farm labor, it, it really kind of never ends. You can get a drought. I mean, you could get a lot of rain in the middle of the night and then you have to wake up out of your bed and resituate your chicken. So, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's payment, I guess, in what you're giving back to nature and kind of bringing that full circle and having that ultimate respect for nature and animals and those type of things. But um, it is a never ending job, though. It's, it's a lot of manual labor. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot of planning. And all the time, you know, it's not a success. So, yeah. And so I can see how recognizing that early on, perhaps you were not enticed to go into farming, you know, coming straight out of uh, your your youth. So I understand that you 
you ended up going into like cosmetology. Right. So, so what was that like? How did you end up in cosmetology and then end up coming back to the farm? Well, I mean, cosmetology was pretty some pretty much something that I always wanted to do in terms of being a creative person. Um, it was something that I definitely had a love for early on. I already knew what I wanted to do. And once I kind of get my mind made up on something, and that's just what it is. So I knew what I wanted mm-hmm. to do. I went after it and did it for several several years, was very successful at doing it. And then, you know, you just shift in your life. You know, it just comes with age and maturity levels and, you know, where you see yourself in the future when you start thinking about that, you know, and I like to call it just being a grown ass woman. Look, <laughs> And you're like, well, wait a minute, you know, I need to like really buckle up here. And, you know, you kind of start self-checking yourself a lot. And then you realize that, you know, you have to do things a certain way, especially when you have children and you want to make sure they have some type of foundation built for them and some type of things to keep, you know, going off of what you're teaching them. And you want to you want to build a legacy. That's what I feel like with my family and my children is I want them to have more to hold on to and something that they can keep going and they don't have to go out here and kind of search for things in their life because we've already kind of planted those seeds and built them together. And I really appreciate the aspect of, you know, the teamwork and working together. A lot of families, they don't have that. And, you know, they can't really communicate with the different personalities to get through a job. So, you know, I think that that would definitely take them far in terms of, you know, building and establishing their own family and the importance of it. And, and I'm really leaning and dependent on each other because I really just find that to be something that's so important in this day of time. So that structure there is a, is something that's very rewarding to do and to be able to see. Yes. You're building a legacy. You are, you're, it's an urban farm, but I also, I understand that it is also a family farm. And so you decided as you realized, you know, coming into your grown ass womanness that you were going to come back to farming and that would be the legacy that you would be creating with your kids while they're still kids and also being able to leave that to them. How are they responding to that? Like, how are your, how are your children on the farm? Well, I mean, you know, it's, since they're different ages, you know, you just have different, you know, of course, the youngest one, he loves all of it because that's all he knows. You know, he pretty much has grown up around it, you know, his entire life. Plus, I've always been an entrepreneur. So they know that I'm just like the master of kind of making something out of nothing. And that's just how even a lot of people in the community look at me as well. And they really appreciate yeah. that kind of mindset um, about things. So, I mean, with that, you know, it can lead from farming to something that they're just really passionate about, you know, and they're able to succeed at that because they have just that experience of seeing somebody like turn an idea into something that's amazing, you know, and you, a lot of kids, they don't get to see that. I mean, and it's no shade against somebody who works a nine to five. I've done it before, but it's a difference when, you know, you're like, you you just like sitting at the table, like I want to do this. And then you do it, you know, you take every possible step that you need to, to complete it. So I, I understand. I truly understand when you say make something out of nothing as a black woman, 
we we understand that on a molecular level <laughs> because in so many ways that is something that we end up having to do even if it's not entrepreneurship even if it's just like we got to get a meal on the table and we got to figure out how to get these scraps together or you know trying to figure out how these bills are going to get paid so shout out to you for being an entrepreneur on black in the garden we call it a plantrepreneur and uh speaking of entrepreneurship one of your uh ways of hustling <laughs> and I, I i use that word you know kind of like in jest but you're making elderberry syrup um and and that started with when your son you know you needed to take care of him when he was sick but somehow you ended up turning that into a business can you tell us more about how that came to be well, I'm, he was kind of just getting sick a lot. And I'm just kind of, again, going back to being a grown ass woman. I'm like, I'm going to the doctor. Anything they tell me to do, I just do it. I don't second guess it. I don't question it. And I just did not feel comfortable with that after a while. I'm like, this just does not seem right. You know, like even down to pain medications and that type of thing. It was just like, oh, they tell me to do something. I do it. You know, it was almost just too, a little bit too robotic for me. So I kind of mm -hmm. started shifting my mindset from that, like, wait a minute, I should be able to relieve the pain of my child when he's hurting, you know, and not have to depend on somebody or ask somebody, what do I need to do? So it was really just kind of taking control of how I felt, you know, his health should go in a certain direction, you know, and I, and I kind of said, well, you know what, I think that I want it to be based more off of a holistic and natural lifestyle, you know? So I said, well, you know, this is really not kind of doing anything. He's sick all the time. What would it, what would I lose for at least attempting to take some control of this situation? So I went out and um, I started making a cert for him and lo and behold, you know, a couple of days he was well opposed to before, you know, taking him to the doctor. I, only thing I was doing pretty much was constantly going back. So I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, I'm I'm making some strides here. And then I made a fever few tincture for him for um, pain relief. I was kind of seeing the medications go on recall. And I'm like, this is just scary. One time of this, because I'm not being adult enough to see that I'm, my control for my child should be a little bit more, you know, in my hands. And uh, yeah. so I'm, I made a plant tincture, gave it to him, relieved his pain. So, of course, I'm not encouraging anybody not to take doctor's visits or anything like that. But, you know, just do your research, you know, do your research. It's OK to ask questions. And a lot of times we're especially as black families, we feel like we don't have that right. when We go into doctor's offices and um, medical facilities, um, even dealing with our insurance companies and things like that. And it's just not true. So I'm, I'm just saying stand up for yourself and your children and how you see fit. This was how I saw fit. And um, I just encourage other families to do it in their own way. Absolutely. Standing up for yourself, advocating for yourself. Exactly. Um, when we are, when we are perceived as black people going into places like doctor's offices and, and dealing with insurance companies, there is kind of a certain expectation that we're just going to like take what they give us. And so I really appreciate you for recognizing that and being able to do what you did there because you recognize that 
you were just running up and down the road, wasting up all this gas. <laughs> mm-hmm. And hospital bills and doctor bills aren't cheap. That too, like especially that. So they taking all your money in, in so many different ways. And once you sat down and, and just thought on it, you realize I actually have more control than would have me think that I do. And along with that control, you got the results that you wanted. And you also got to take it to the next level with being able to offer that to other families. So with the elderberry syrup, uh, I understand you're sourcing, by now you're sourcing most of the ingredients from your own farm. Right. So right now um, I do have some plants that are planted and I'm actually this week getting ready to expand on that because they're dormant and now is the time to replant them and think about spring. It's already that time of year for us here um, in North Carolina zone 7B. So I'm writing down a lot of um, different things to plan. And this is one of my things that is on my list. You can um, propagate the elderberries now and replant them and kind of uh, spread out what you already have in that type of method. So I'm going to be doing that. Then of course the um, honey from my beehives, which is expanding into different locations. Like, you know, I might have a beehive set up at a farm over here because that helps them with pollination. And then I check on the hive and, you know, I may share whatever I'm getting with that family or whoever wants to um, donate a piece of land because a lot of people, they have the land. They don't, number one, have the education to know what to do to cultivate that land. So, you know, it's kind of like I can help them with that part. Plus they get fresh food. Plus, you know, the land is just not sitting there because now they're following me. They're talking to me and they have more awareness about the importance of, you know, using that space besides having, you know, a a big chicken sitting there, even though I like big aluminum chickens. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, something that you can actually benefit from and and not just a fancy yard. I'm not really um, big into that type of thing. So people are just becoming more aware and they're willing to help. It be- it's a become a community effort. And that's the b- beautiful thing about that is seeing how people are like, wait a minute, uh, I can I can do something to help here, you know, and that's what you yeah. want to happen. So that is so dope. I'm so glad that you brought up beekeeping. But and I want to come back to that. But with what you were saying about coming in, like getting land donated to you and being able to educate people who have donated that land and and the whole community and collaborative effort. I wanted to definitely speak with you about how we have been inspired by Fannie Lou Hamer, our ancestor, who was doing a very similar thing. So, um, you know, I mentioned that to you and I'm like, oh God, this is the perfect opportunity to get into how you've been inspired by Fannie Lou Hamer and how you recognize the uh, the similarities between what you're doing and what she's done. Yeah, she was definitely uh, a phenomenal woman. That's just really almost to say the least, you know, I mean, the amount of strength that she had was just unreal. It, it was not unreal because I mean, I know that there are so many strong black women out there, especially who came before me and paved the way for me to walk the path that I'm walking. And I definitely have a lot of respect for that. And that's how I feel like you pay homage to our ancestors is by um, using your skills and talents in whatever direction that is for me. You know, I'm great at 
the farming and working with the animals and beekeeping and educating other people about what I'm doing. So um, when I kind of listened to her, you know, in her voice and how strong she was and just so real, like, you know, I, I like her transparency. I like the fact that she did not try to be anybody else but herself. And um, it was like, take it or leave it type of attitude. And that's something that I kind of have that. I'm I'm not going to say kind of, I have that same attitude and I'm glad I do because you don't want people to have these expectations that are just not there. You know, I'm like, this is me. This is how I do things. And that's just kind of how I, you know, that's kind of how it is. I stand for this. Um, This is my mission. And that's important to me. And sometimes it's just always not popular opinion. But she was just a gift to this earth. A hundred percent. Yeah, she was a gift to this earth for sure. Sure. Yeah, I I read the article in the Bitter Southerner about you. And I just want to quote that and, and continue with the conversation about Fannie Lou Hamer. You said that you want to imagine a life where welfare doesn't exist because those communities are planting seeds together and now we've been so beaten up as a race and we've been told that we can't do things all of our life. Of course, it's systematic. You understand what struggle is like. You said, I know what it's like to be broke and what it's like to be homeless. So I need to work. So I, have to, so I never have to go back and sacrifice. Just being ready to rest and like, you sound just like Fatty girl. Like, wow. <laughs> That's exactly what you're striving for. So that really stood out to me. And um, speak to that, that struggle. Right, right. I mean, it was just, I mean, they. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, she definitely experienced far more struggle than I ever probably, you know, could, um, you know, relate to just like on a personal level because they would walk without shoes for miles and they would tie, you know, certain things to their feet and the ground was cold. And, you know, they would not complain. They would sing. Her mother would sing to her. And mm-hmm. that's how she would, they would motivate themselves and kind of block out going on around them. And, you know, I, I find myself doing that a lot when I was a child. I did things like that growing up in kind of, you know, situations and environments. I would always have just such a great imagination um, beyond those. And it helped me to cope with a lot of different things and definitely get past, you know, certain things. So having that strong mind is just like it's a blessing to be able to do that and, and kind of be able to push forward no matter what situation you're in. So I had a lot of respect for that. They would sing and it just almost just makes your soul just, <laughs> you know, light up at how much passion you know they had for each other to get through what they were going through you know it wasn't like you know your feet are cold I'm leaving you here no we're going to tie something up on our feet and we're going to keep walking this journey together so yeah. you know that type of unity with each other and family and family is something that I hope to see you know, with the future and what I want to instill with my own family and my own kids, because it has been hard on black families. I, we cannot pretend that it hasn't been hard in terms of, you know, just single parent homes, um, that type of thing. And just kind of just the d- systematic destruction of black families. And that can be a wide range of things. So, you know, just kind of being the example for other, you know, younger black families to you know know that they can do it too this is not something that's out of reach for them 
And, um, you know, just having that leadership to kind of step out and answer their questions and kind of be that model for you. And no, none of no day is perfect. You know, sometimes we do have things that, you know, we have to work through and that's how you get stronger. And that's the lessons that help you build and know how to do things better. So. Absolutely. Part one, mother's finest on the books. I hope that y'all enjoyed that. And I am looking forward to having you come back and join us for part two of the interview on next week. If you're listening in real time, if you binge in, then just go ahead on a part two. You know, you want to click it. It's probably just going to automatically come up anyway. But thank you so much for lending me, lending us your ears. You're tuned into Black in the Garden podcast. And I'm so glad that you did. And I just want to, you know, roll. What do I do? Roll this thing out. Close this thing out. I'm, I told y'all I know words now. <laughs> I'm not out here just doing a podcast, just making stuff up. Although I do like to make up words. You know, I do. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are following the things Subscribing to the things. If you haven't already subscribed, guess what you can do? Subscribe. If you are listening on well, whatever the respective platform of choice is for you, you can subscribe. Now, I always like to uh, just give a special ask to my Apple podcast listeners. If your hands are free, all right, go ahead over and leave us a cute review That is a great way to support the podcast. We appreciate your support. Your support is necessary as we are just pushing this thing into greatness and everything related to black excellence. All right. So next year, February 2020, we try to get on this black history podcast to listen to. Wouldn't that be dope? You pull up your black history or you pull up your podcast app. Boom. Black in the Garden, right there. I I just I have big goals. I have big dreams for this thing. And I appreciate your support. So leaving a review is a way that you can, you know, help us get there. Another way that you can support is by keeping up on the socials. You can keep up on the Instagram at Black in the Garden. Same handle for the Twitter at Black in the Garden. Y'all know we got a Facebook page. Don't worry. I am going to get it updated. All right. That is Black in the Garden as well. All right. You can find all of the Black in the Garden handles pretty much on all of. It's the same everywhere is what I'm trying to say. If you go on Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Black in the Garden. That is where you will find pretty much all the info, including the affiliate links and things of that nature so that you can get some discounts on some dope Black owned products. If you would like to go ahead and drop a few dollars in our collection plate here at Black in the Garden, we have a Patreon and you can become a patron and get access to some really cool, really dope, really exclusive content because we out here creating content. All right. That is patreon.com forward slash Black in the Garden. Get all the information that you need right there. All right. Become a patron. Support the pod financially. It helps. Every little drop helps. You know, we appreciate all of that good support in that way. All right. 
And like I said, leave a review, follow, do all those things and tell a friend. If your hands are free, text a friend. Take your phone out and be like, you know who might, not might, who definitely would like to hear Black in the Garden? My homegirl, my homie, my botanical brother, my soil sister, my planty peep out here just missing out. You ain't right for that. Go on and text them and let them know. All right. So those are a few ways that you can contribute to and support Black in the Garden. Thank you so much once again for lending me your ears and come back for part two. I want to wish you love, light, and soil. Once again, I'm Cola B talking. I just be talking y'all. Not, but I be reading and researching and stuff as well. You know what I'm trying to say. Love, light, and soil y'all. Thank you.